0: Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. God's plan has always been to unite us with Himself and other believers through His Son. Our new life comes with a calling that urges us to radically love others in new ways. Join us as we go through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series called Unimaginable. Hey, with a show of hands, um, Are there any of you here today, this morning, when you were in high school or college, that you swore, you made a vow that there is no way I will ever live and work in Houston, Texas? Any of you ever say that? And where do you find yourself this morning? In Houston, Texas. I'm writing an article for a sports magazine on a player from the University of Houston, and as I was interviewing her for this article, I began to talk to her and I said, hey, when you were like one of the top high school players here in greater Houston, how did you choose the University of Houston? And she said, here's the funny story. I didn't wanna to go to Houston, University of Houston, because it was like the hometown team and back when I was in high school, they weren't very good. And like most you know, high school basketball players who are girls, I'm looking at like Tennessee, I'm looking at Stanford, I'm looking at Baylor, I'm not looking at the University of Houston. And so I just shared, isn't it funny how God has a sense of humor when you say, I'll never go somewhere, I'll never do something. So for those of you who said back in high school or college that you would never live and work in Houston, the joke's on you. Um, But in all seriousness, if we all look back on our lives, if you turn back the clock five years or 10 years, uh, yesterday I officiated a wedding for a couple from Byte City Fellowship and I asked, because uh, the charge came from Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 21, I said, hey, could you imagine back seven years ago, as you were praying about being married one day, that you'd be staying right here on August 13th at 6 p.m. in front of all these friends and family, looking in the eyes of your future bride, and the groom said no, and the bride said no as well. So there are things, if we look back, turn the back the clock, five or 10 years, that back then that we could not imagine would be going on today, Amen. For those of you in the room who are over 60, all three of you, I think, um, <laughs> you remember a time in which if we went back 40, 50 years, and I said to you, one day in the future, in 2022, you're going to be able to put a giant supercomputer that takes up an entire room and put that supercomputer in your back pocket. You're going to put that same supercomputer in your purse. And you're just like, oh, I can't even imagine something like that. And if we remember, again, 40, 50 years ago, there was a time, if I told you as a 20 something, that one day there's going to be this thing called the World Wide Web. And it's going to give you access to information and data from around the world, 24 7, 365. And everything you read on it, you can trust. (laughs) There was a time in which there was no such thing as the World Wide Web. Um, For many of you, how many of y'all remember the very first email address you got? The very first email address you got. There was a time I remember in college, my roommate, who was a big tech guy, he said, guess what? I said, what? He said, I just got an email address. And I'm like, what is that? He said, it's electronic mail. And he said, what we can do is like you write a letter, put a stamp and put it in the mailbox. Now you just push send and it can go to somebody instantly electronic mail. And I remember about a year later, I got my very first email address. Because there's a time, there's no such thing as email. So back then, there was no way we could imagine that one day, rather than writing a letter, mailing it, and sending it overseas, that we would be able to communicate with people in written form instantly. So here's the thing. There are many things in our lives that we think about, if we look back, that we cannot imagine would happen. And that's the series we're talking about uh, in Ephesians. We've entitled Unimaginable, Unimaginable, and it's based on that famous passage, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. That God's able to exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. Matter of fact, my mother-in-law has been worshiping with us for the last three weeks. She's back in Austin now. But my mother-in-law, when she was here, my wife asked this question. She grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Just two generations ago, just two generations ago, could you imagine growing up in Corpus Christi as a teenager, as a young girl, when you would go and see the colored water fountain and the white water fountain? You'd see the colored grocery store and the white grocery store. You'd see the colored school and the white school. You'd see like the colored church and the white church that one day, 50 years ago, just two generations ago, that one day, there wouldn't be a colored water fountain and a water fountain, or white water fountain, there would just be a water fountain. That here you are worshiping on a Sunday morning in a predominantly white church, that 50 years ago, could you've imagined that this would be happening? And she said this to my wife, back then, I couldn't even imagine that. I thought that this racially segregated world was the world that we would live in forever, that we would always have separate schools, separate churches, separate neighborhoods, separate everything, that that was the world we live in. So she said, mind-blowing, I couldn't not, could not have imagined that we would be here today. And that's the cultural context of Ephesians, why we call it unimaginable, because in the city of Ephesus, it was a very divided city. So, if you remember from Acts series, Acts 19 and Acts 20, Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. And normally, what he does when he goes to the city is he finds a synagogue. He finds Jews. He opens up the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm chapter 2, and he says, The Messiah is here. His name is Jesus Christ. But Ephesus had so few Jewish people that he had to go down by the river to meet with these Jews to tell them about. Jesus Christ. And I think there's a van bound by the river as well. And so a church is started in Ephesus. And here's the thing about the Jews. The Jews were a minority. They were often the servants and subjects of those wealthier Greeks and Romans. And they had a disdain for the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans. They remember the time of Egyptian captivity, Babylonian captivity. They remember how Rome occupied them. They remember all this stuff, and so they would call Gentiles, the Greeks, and the Romans dogs, not in a term of endearment like we say, like, hey, what's up, dog? We don't say it that way, but in a derogatory way. Now, here's the thing about the Romans and the Greeks. So Ephesus was a center of Roman and Greek god and goddess worship. It was a very spiritual city, and that's why when Paul first came, he had lots of opposition, spiritual opposition, because he's pointing people to Jesus Christ, and then eventually the church formed. And by Acts 20, after he's been there for two years, the elders at Ephesus are bawling. They're crying because Paul is about to leave. And so the Romans had this sense of pride because we're the center of Roman God and goddess worship. We're this economic center. We have the temple of Artemis. And most of the Jews that we know work for us. They're our subjects and our servants. So there's this air of superiority. And so imagine in that world, unimaginable, If you told a Jewish grandmother that this thing called the mystery that we're going to look at in Ephesians, this thing called the church that God has instituted, there's no Roman church and Jewish church. There's no slave church and free church. Paul says there's just the church. Mind-blowing. Because they lived in a divided world, so their assumption was, we're going to have a divided church. But Paul says, no, even in this divided church along socioeconomic lines and cultural and racial lines, we're going to just have the church. Not a black church and a white church. We're just going to have the church. And so, one of the central themes of the book of Ephesians is that the mystery, the Greek word is mysterion, is the church, the ecclesia, the multi ethnic church that represents the kingdom, the church. And with that, another theme is unity, kingdom uni- or church unity, because you take wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated, Gentile and Jew, slave and free, and you bring them together into one church. You have to have not uniformity, but unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the last theme that we see in Ephesians, this unimaginable thing called the church, this body or family called the church, is you have to have love. God's unconditional love, not feelings of I like you and you like me, but unconditional love that out of a heart because you've connected with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want the best for you because I love you as my brother or sister in Christ. We may have been raised in two different homes, two different cultures, but now we're part of God's family. That is what's called unimaginable. Matter of fact, one commentator says it this way. Um, He says this, is because the universe is fractured and communuted as a result of sin that a consummation of all things in Christ becomes a necessary plan of God, a creation in which Jesus Christ is a singular head over all and in whom all things are filled with a divine fullness by the Spirit. With this as God's goal, one can see why Ephesians is written to address many of these earthly disunions and to bring humankind back into a heavenly unity in Christ. All believing humanity, participants in marriage, Parents and children, workers and employees, etc. In a world where disunity pervades in racism, individualism, genderism, and so on, no doubt provoked and propagated by hostile forces, the consummation of all things in Christ is good news indeed. Amen? So that's the theme of this book called Ephesians, a letter to the church at Ephesus written between 60 and to 62 AD, probably from a Roman prison. If you don't believe it's the Roman prison epistle, then it could be earlier when he was in a Caesarean prison, three or four years earlier. But regardless, Paul is writing this while he's in prison. Now, don't think American prison. Don't think American jail, three hots and a cot. Don't think that way. This is most likely a hole in the ground with a little grate over it, with human feces and urine all over it. So that's the place that he's writing from. Um, And it's divided this way, very simply. The first half, chapter one, two, and three is orthodoxy, what we should believe. The second half, chapter four, five, and six is orthoproxy, how we should practice or behave. So the first half, belief. The second half, behavior. The first half, doctrine. The second half, our actions, what we practice and do. And also to note is it's not written to the individual, God saved me, God chose me. It's written to the church. And so what we're going to see today and throughout the book is the plural pronoun. So don't just think of this as me, my life, my work, my job, my salvation. Think of this as the family of God, as the body, as the church. So last week, um, I don't know if you all were blessed. Last week, uh, my good friend Pierre Cannings was preaching here. We did a pulpit swap. I was at Living Word. Did y'all, were all blessed by that, by him? Um, I'll just say this. And this is why I love this thing called the church. I'm not a multi-ethnic church guy or a kingdom diversity guy. People always peg me as that as I consult all around the country. I'm just a kingdom guy. I'm a church guy. And so when we say multi-ethnic church, that's being redundant because the church is multi-ethnic. And the kingdom is already diverse. So say kingdom diversity is saying diverse, diverse. I mean, that's like redundant. It's like my friend Chris C. He's pastor Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a Greek word for church. And so when people say Ecclesia church, I'm like, church, church? Um, But I was at a predominantly African-American church, Living Word. And I'll tell you what, preaching at a black church takes a whole lot more energy out of you, man. (laughs) Um, And worshiping as well. If you think we've got exuberant, exciting worship, like, man, they take it to 11 at at Living Word. But here's the thing I want to talk about today. Whether you're at Living Word, whether you come from a church, and I preach at plenty of churches that have hymns, and are very somber and like reflective, so I'm not dissing any style of worship. The question is this, why do we praise God? Whether you have exuberant worship, whether you have more solemn worship and more cerebral kind of worship, why do we praise God? Not just on Sundays, our worship team, they practice, they rehearse, they come, and they lead us in worship. Not just on Sundays, why do we extend so much energy and effort to do this? But even Monday through Saturday, why should we live lives of praise and worship And the answer is found in Ephesians chapter 1. So turn with me to Ephesians 1, and we will find out why do we, as God's people, as the children of God, why do we praise God? Why do we praise God? Ephesians chapter 1, the series called Unimaginable. I'll give you a little context as you turn there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence. 202 words, no periods at all. And so the message title is Run On Blessing. It's a big run-on sentence. I was going to ask Michael Flores, our worship leader, there are 202 words, so there are 202 reasons to praise the Lord. I was going to ask him to rewrite Matt Redman's song, 10,000 reasons, to 202 reasons on the fly, but he couldn't think of a word that rhymes with 202, so... Paul begins this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1, by the will of God to the saints, notice he says saints, plural, who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to, and here's a bad translation, Paul speaking Texan here, grace to y'all and peace from God our Father, again plural, and the Lord Jesus Christ, a very standard greeting for the apostle Paul. Now, here's where the run-on sentence begins. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're going to focus on point number one is this, the work of the Trinity. We're going to see the Trinity at work in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the mystery of the Trinity, how we worship one God, and there's three distinct persons. They have distinct roles. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the Father in the Trinity, First member is the Father. Verse 3 simply says, who has blessed us, underline blessed, not will bless us, but he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What we're going to go over as we talk about the Father are the seven blessings that we have, the seven blessings that we have as believers. The seven blessings that we have already because of the Father orchestrating and planning this. So the first thing verse 3 tells us is that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the spiritual realm, in the realm in which there are God and the angels and all the stuff that we cannot see, that we've been fully blessed already. So you have been blessed fully. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So the second blessing. So number one, he blessed us. Number two, he chose us. And notice again the pronoun, not chose me but corporately, as a body, as a family, he chose us. He chose us. This was like the plan of God to elect or choose us. And notice this, too, that if you remember, God is God all by himself. God doesn't need anybody. God doesn't need food, water. He has no needs at all. God doesn't need anybody to worship him. He's not a needy God. He's God all by himself. And here's a God that doesn't need anybody, and yet he chose you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God chose you. Now think about this. I'm going to bring up some uh, trauma in your lives. If you remember in grade school when it was time to pick teams for dodgeball or kickball, when a captain of the team picked somebody because they needed somebody, they're agile, they're quick, they can jump high, they have a strong arm, you were picked based on you being able to provide something for the captain of the team. And for some of us, When it came to dodgeball and kickball, we had nothing to offer. Trauma, trigger, so we were picked last or not picked at all. But here's a God who doesn't need anybody, need anything, who's got all by himself, who out of his own good pleasure, picked you. He chose you. So if you feel rejected today, overlooked today, If you've placed your faith in Christ, know this, that God picked you first. He says this also, number three, verse five. He says, he predestined us. That was the action. He predestined us to adoptions and sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 11, verse 11. In him, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of, again, his will. God who doesn't need anybody, doesn't need anything, according to his will, he predestined us, he picked us, he chose us. Now here's the great mystery. If you've studied the Bible in any length, you know this, did I choose God or did God choose me? And I would say it's both because the Bible is clear, John three sixteen, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. And so one day, you and I, maybe it's in high school, at Young Life, or maybe at a church, you heard the gospel. Somebody shared the gospel with you, and you said, "Ah, I'm a whosoever, I believe. And that's the paradox or the mystery of this, that God chose you before the foundation of the world, not based on how you respond, not based on any good thing that you bring to the table, not based on any of that, just based on his will. He chose you. So picture it this way, is that there's a doorway, and above the doorway, it says, whosoever believes. And one day you said, "I believe," and you walk through that doorway. The moment you walk through, you look behind on that same doorway above the door, it says, "Chosen before the foundation of the world." If you want a bigger picture of that, look at Romans 8, Romans 8. Romans 8:28. 8, Romans 8:28. The passage we probably all have memorized. Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The question is, what is that good that he's talking about? And what we often look at is this. We think a bad thing happens to us, and God can bring something good out of it. We lose our job, and then God gives us our dream job. We have a nasty breakup, and then meet the man or woman of our dreams. Like That's how we think it is, but that's not the good, because the good has to be defined In the context, what's the good? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's the good, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus Christ. So this is what God does. God causes all things, good things, bad things, hard things, difficult things, amazing things, mountaintop, valley, he causes all things all experiences in your life to help you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to become conformed, to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the plan of God. Not dream job, not dream wedding, not dream all that stuff. And it can include that, but it's to make you more like Jesus Christ. And now we're gonna look at salvation from a 30,000 foot view in verse 30 because he talks about being predestined to become conformed. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined He chose beforehand, before the foundation of the world, he also called. And you remember that. You came at a point when God called you and said, come to my son. Trust my son, Jesus. He called you. And those whom he called, he also justified. You placed your faith in him, and you were declared righteous. You were justified. Now, notice this. He says, and those whom he justified, he also, one day when you die, you'll be glorified as well. Is that what it says? It also says that you were glorified. He also glorified. So even though none of us in the room have died, I think, right? Is anybody, can you make sure your neighbors are awake and alive still? God is such a promise-keeping God that he has a plan, he has a will. He's sovereign. He predestined you. He called you. You placed your faith in him. You're declared righteous. You're justified. And even though you and I have not died yet, you can bank on the fact, whether you die today, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be glorified. Heaven is your home. With Being with him for eternity is going to be your home. So that's the mystery that God has chosen us. He's predestined us. We respond in faith. And one day we'll be glorified. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 we'll find blessing number four. Blessing number four. Verse six. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, underline that word grace, with which he favored us in the beloved. You can underline favored as well. Verse eight, which he lavished on us. So here's the fourth blessing. He lavishes us with Grace. He doesn't just lightly sprinkle us with grace. That word lavish means to just abundantly pour onto. I've mentioned this before this summer. I spoke at a camp. It was at the head of the Nueces River. There are several waterfalls, and I could go under those waterfalls and take a natural shower. After a hike or a run or going cycling or fishing, I could just go under that water and get just drenched like a natural shower. That's the picture here. You have been drenched by God's grace. God's grace means this. It's his unmerited, unearned favor. Oh, I forgot to mention this. That word blessed in verse three is, um, the word is eulogia. We get the English word eulogy, to say good things about or praise. Uh, But it can also mean in the context, things of benefit, things that are going to prosper you. So God blesses us with things that will benefit us and prosper us in our walk with him. And the way he does that is he lavishes us with Grace. But here's the better picture. Don't just picture being under a small waterfall like this. God lavishes you with grace, unmerited, unearned favor, like Niagara Falls. And if you want a reason why you and I should be humble, is because every good thing that you have, every good thing that you are, every good thing that you experience is not because you're some amazing person, not because you're better than somebody else. It's all because of God's grace. Unmerited, unearned favor. You are in the position you are today because of God's grace. The spiritual gifts that you have today, the root word for gifts is caris, it's grace. You have spiritual gifts of faith, of hospitality, of teaching, not because you earned it and worked for it, but because of God's grace. If you've got a work ethic, if you have an amazing Christian home, it's not because you've applied the scriptures and all that, it's because of God's grace. God has lavished you. Niagara Falls, Angel Falls, with grace. Here's the fifth blessing, verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, he made known to us the mystery. The Greek word there is mysterion. What English word does that sound like? Come on, it's not a trick question. I, I I just read the verse. Mystery. That word, mystery, means things that have been hidden in the past that are now being revealed. It's like when you read a murder thriller and there's like a dead body, and as you read the book, you begin to see this plan or the the, the who who done it. He says he's made known as a mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, verse ten, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring together in Christ things in heaven and things on. Earth. That word times in verse 10 is a Greek word oikonomia. We get things word economy. It's a dispensation or a season. He says, in this season, God has revealed to us the church. If you ask the Jews back then about the church or even about really the Messiah, Jesus, they may have been like, I don't, I don't get it. One day there's going to be a Jewish church and a Greek church and a black church and a white church. And then he's, Paul says, no, there's just the church. John 17, Jesus says, the vision is that all of God's people one day would be one. And throughout the book of Acts, we don't see a single mono-ethnic church. All we see is multi-ethnic churches, even the church in Jerusalem, which was comprised of Jews, had Jewish proselytes, Gentiles, who were part of this church. And so he says, God has now revealed these things. And I believe in verse 10, what he's also talking about is one day, Jesus Christ will come back. Physically to rule and reign on this planet, along with faithful believers, hopefully some of us in the room, if not all of us, will come and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. He says, God is now revealing those things to us. And so, uh, number five is, he makes known his plan to us. He makes known his plan to us. This mystery that was hidden, now he's revealing to us. Verse nine also says, he says, court, uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the pleasure, the his good pleasure which he set forth in him. So that's the other part in verse uh, number six is purposes us for his good pleasure. He purposes us for his good pleasure. God has a plan. Our broken world, our fractured world, God could have done it himself. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He could have redeemed and restored the world all by himself. And yet his plan includes us. Broken, frail, impotent people, he uses us in his will, and his pleasure. He uses us, and that's good news, amen? Amen. That God doesn't need anybody who's omnipotent says, I'm using you as an instrument, as a vessel for me. I use human instruments to bring the message of the gospel to tell people about Jesus Christ. So again, number six is he purposes us for his good pleasure. So remember that tomorrow morning, as you're sitting in your cubicle, as you're sitting in your office, you're going to the water cooler and you ask your coworker, hey, how was your weekend? And your coworker says, it wasn't good. My spouse just gave me divorce papers. It's not looking good. And you take that as I'm a human instrument placed here by God to share the love of Christ with this person, to give the hope of Jesus Christ to this person, to share the good news, to say, you know what, man, that's terrible. I know you had such dreams and hopes for your marriage and your wedding. That's terrible, but you know, can I tell you about someone who offers eternal living hope? God uses human instruments, his plan, his will. Then finally, number seven, verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. So again, number seven is he works all things according to his will for us. So number six, He purposes us for his good pleasure and he works all things according to his will for us. God uses human instruments. Now, a lot of scholars say Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this run-on sentence breaks down perfectly. Verses 4 through 6 talk about the Father. 7 through 11 is talking about the Son. 12 through 14 is talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't think it breaks down that neatly and concisely because Point B, we're talking about now the Son. Throughout verses 3 through 14, we see this repeated theme, in or through, in Christ or through Christ or in him or through him. We see this repeated 12 times in verses 3 through 14. So this is what I'm uh, going to share about the Son. Jesus Christ is the delivery method. All these blessings that we've been blessed with, these seven blessings, we've now received it in Christ or through Christ. So Jesus Christ is a sphere in which every blessing is offered and received. And that's why, again, we can underline, you can go back on your own time. Verse 3, in Christ, it says in uh, verse 11, in him, it gets repeated over and over again that Jesus Christ is the one that we receive these blessings through. When we place our faith in Christ, we are placed in Christ, and we're placed in Christ because we're now in Christ, we receive all of these blessings by the Father through Christ. But here's a specific mention, the last point of this, last subpoint of point one, the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and it's plural, y'all's salvation, having also believed, y'all were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the first installment, or who is a first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So letter C is the Holy Spirit. All blessings are sealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge, as a down payment. To put it in terms you may understand, one day in Revelation, all of us in here who place our faith in Christ will be wed to Jesus Christ. We are the church, the bride of Christ. We're gonna be wed to Jesus Christ. And until that point, both Ephesians and Galatians talk about this thing, the pledge. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as an engagement ring. Jesus says, I'm so committed to you to one day be my spouse for eternity and to have this heavenly wedding that for now you have received the engagement ring, this diamond ring, the Holy Spirit as a pledge. And so let me give you a picture of what this looks like. Um, how many of y'all grew up doing this? Um, my mom, even though we weren't raised on a farm, every now and then she would can fruits and vegetables. Anybody like have parents that would can fruits and vegetables all right? So my mom would get like fresh fruits, and she would get a jar that was sterilized, put it in there, put the brine and the sugar, and put it together. So the seven blessings that we have received are the contents. They're the fruit or the vegetables. The jar is Jesus Christ, and the seal or the top is the Holy Spirit, and we have now been placed in that jar because we're placed in Christ. And so every blessing we've just talked about, we have received already in Christ, um, anybody in here ever gone on an all-inclusive vacation? Anybody ever go on an all-inclusive vacation? My wife and I went on one uh, last year. We went on an all-inclusive cruise, and this is what we did. We just simply paid for the room and all that, but we would get a list of everything included now that we were in our room, and that's what God is doing here in uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. All these seven blessings are simply the all-inclusive. When you place your faith in Christ, here's what came with it. Now, here's the question. If that's what God did, now what's our role? Here's point two, our role. Verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So here's uh, point number two. Our role is to be holy and blameless. To be holy and blameless. To be holy means to be set apart, not be common and ordinary, to be distinct, to be unusual. And the blameless doesn't mean sinless, like I mentioned before. Because of Christ, we're now blameless before God. We're white, clean. We're justified. But it also means to walk in a way that you deal rightly with your sin when you sin. Does anybody in the room sin? Like am I like talking above your pay grade? When we sin, convicted by the Holy Spirit, we pray and ask God for forgiveness. We deal with it rightly. If we've hurt people, because sin typically affects other people, we go to those people and ask for forgiveness as well. And if we walk in that way, we can be blameless. The other part here, he says, we're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be distinct and different from the world around us because the world has a different God, a different master. But now that we are in Christ, our king and our master is who? A little more confidence, y'all. Come on. I told y'all. The answer is either Moses, Paul, or Jesus. Jesus. It ain't Moses, it ain't Paul. We have a new master and a new king, Jesus Christ. And so we should be distinct and different. And sadly, if we look around our world today and even over the last 200 years, the church in America, we have not looked distinct and different from the world. When it comes to how we treat people, when it comes to race relations, we look just like the world. All the statistics show. When it comes to marriage and divorce rates, we have the same rates. When a kingdom marriage should look different than a non-kingdom marriage, a kingdom man should look different than a different man. A kingdom CEO or kingdom lawyer should look different who has submitted himself to the king. That's what it means to be holy, to be distinct and different because we have a new king, we have a new master. It's not us, not the God of this world. We're no longer slaves to sin. Um. In college, uh, like hopefully many of you all, I had a clothes closet, but on the bottom I had several pairs of shoes. I had my Stan Smiths, I had my Vans, I had my Nike Air Force Ones, I had a whole bunch of shoes. But there was one set of shoes that had its own unique bag. Um, anybody else in the room run track in high school, college? Run track in high school, college? Anybody else? Come on, honey, you gotta raise your hand this time. She did in the first service. My two-time All-American, and she's like. <laughs> so in this little cotton bag, set apart from all the rest of my shoes, I had a different pair of shoes. They're my track spikes. These track spikes had a distinct purpose. They were designed. They weighed only like six ounces. Designed to take me around the track one lap as fast as possible. So though they were shoes, they were not ordinary shoes. They were not common shoes. They were distinct, set-apart shoes for a specific purpose. To help me run around the track as fast as possible one time, they were set apart. Now, how foolish of it would, would it be for me to wear my track spikes to class, my track spikes to like church, my track spikes to the gym? It would be foolish of me because they were designed for distinct purpose and they were set apart. And friends, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been set apart for a purpose, We've been set apart to make disciples of all people. We've been set apart. We've been been set apart to be holy, to be distinct. God says, be holy as I am holy. And yet here's the great problem in America today is for many of us, we're wearing our track spikes to work. We're wearing our track spikes to parties. We're wearing our track spikes because we look just like the world. And yet here he says, because you've been chosen, because you've been foreordained, because God knew you before the foundation of the world, because of that, you should be distinct, set apart. Secondly, at the end of verse 6, at the end of verse 12, at the end of verse 14, we should be for the praise of God's glory. He ends each of those sections saying, because God did this, you should be for the praise of God's glory. And that leads me to our response. The reason why we praise God, even if they don't play your song on Sunday, Even if they don't play your jam on Sunday, even if the style of worship music is different, Monday through Saturday, why we should reflect God's glory, why we should worship and praise God is simply because of what he's done for us. So here's our response to bless the Lord. He says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a verbal adjective. He's saying our response to everything he's about to talk about all seven blessings, our response is to be bless the Lord. We bless the Lord. because Not because God will bless us, but because God has blessed us. So if you came in here today, perhaps you just had the worst week in your life, the worst month in your life, and you're saying, I have no reason to praise the Lord. I don't even want to be here. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are blessed With every spiritual blessing, you are already blessed. And so our response is to bless the Lord. And let me uh, tell this way. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the ruin of your mind. And he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's being oxymoronic. Sacrifices are normally killed. But he says, you should be a living sacrifice. And this is your spiritual service of worship. So you can praise God when you come to Bayou City Fellowship and we extend our hands, we lift our voices to him, but you also worship and praise God by your life. So when you go to work tomorrow, as you're an accountant, your boss and others around you should see you reflecting God's glory, giving praise to God as you're working diligently, hard, hard, as a teacher, we're going to pray for the teachers today at the end of our worship gathering. As you're there teaching, knowing that God has placed you there and that you can give praise to God even in the way you teach, even in the way you interact with parents, even in the way you interact with those difficult parents. i the parent, uh, let the teacher say amen to that. Let the difficult parents say amen to that. So the response, verse three, because you and I are blessed, not we will be blessed, even though we will be blessed as well. We praise God because who he is and what he's done. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you all, but during um, the pandemic, when everything got shut down, no football, no baseball, no basketball. I don't know about you all, but I love every now and then watching competitive sports. And did anybody else in the room find themselves watching competitive professional cornhole? Yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Watching competitive professional cornhole, did anybody here say, man, my job is miserable? Maybe I need to become a professional cornhole player? Anybody? Well, I found this competition. Um, If you leave here today on your way to your favorite restaurant, you may see somebody standing on the corner and there are a sign spinner or sign twirler. And get this, there is a national sign spinning championship with, I believe, a $1 million prize. Joel, is that a hot? Because you're like, man, maybe I chose the wrong career Profession. Go on YouTube. You can find it. Look up National Sign Spinning Championship, and you'll see these. And they're doing backflips. And these are professional, not amateurs, professional sign spinners and twirlers. Now, here's what, as I watch this championship, this is the, what they do. A company comes to a professional sign twirler and says, if you will... Spend time on this street corner, bringing attention to yourself, but really not bringing attention to yourself as you do backflips and twirl signs. Really, if you will point people to our business, if you will direct people to us, if you will make our business business look significant and important, if you do these things for us, we will bless you. We'll give you a check. Because you're a professional sign roller. If you point people to us and make us look good, we will bless you. We'll give you a check. Friends, God is calling us to be professional representatives of him. To represent him wherever you go, to praise God wherever we go. Not because God says, if you do these things, I will bless you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says this. Because you've been blessed... Now you are a professional sandwich board or professional sign twirler. You should be pointing people to Jesus Christ because you and I, friends, in Christ, as a church, as a body, unimaginable, we have been blessed. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are a sovereign God, king over everything. Before we were even us, before you were you, God knew you. God, you knew us. And God, you chose, you predestined, and you called. God, we're grateful that we have answered that call by faith. Thank you, Lord, that you, a God who doesn't need anybody, who has want for nothing, and yet you've chosen us and you're using us in this kingdom work of sharing the good news, of making disciples, of redemption and restoration. God, I'm grateful as I think about uh, Genesis 12 that there was a covenant made to Abraham and we all sang that song as kids in Sunday school, that God, now you're adding to your family. You've adopted us into your family, not as second class children, but God as co-heirs to inherit all that you will give us and have given us. So God, I do pray for us that we would be praisers, worshipers when we gather here on Sunday mornings collectively. God, whether they play our jam or our song or not, whether the style of worship is different, whether it's solemn, whether it's cerebral, whether it's celebratory, God, that we would come with a heart full of praise because of what you have done for us already, because what you have already blessed us with. And God, tomorrow as we go to work, Monday through Saturday, at the soccer game, in the classroom, in the boardroom, that we would represent you, that we would point people to you, that we would praise you because, God, you have lavished us. You've drowned us in your grace and your goodness. You've blessed us with things that are beneficial and good for us. So, God, would you do that through us as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by him. God, I do pray for everyone here today who's yet to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that today would be the day that they place their faith in Christ and receive all the blessings in Christ and to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We pray today would be the day to place their faith in Christ alone, and we ask us all in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people. Said, Amen. Well, Master prayer team, come up my left and right if you need prayer. If you came in today with your hung head, uh, your head, head hung low because of a difficult week. And you thought, I have no reason to praise the Lord or give God praise. You said I'm going to pray with you. The prayer team is available also on the app. If you submit a prayer request, as elders, we pray every Thursday morning. And we'd love to join you in prayer as well. So the prayer team is available now for your respond to God and his word. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bay City family, visit us online at baycityfellowship.com or download the Bay City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.